Welcome back to the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. Do you know if the new California Rules of Professional Conduct change the currently existing rule governing contact between prosecutors and represented persons in any significant way? Is the new rule tied to whether prosecutors or law enforcement can recontact persons after their Fifth and or Sixth Amendment right to counsel has attached? Can prosecutors communicate with charged but unrepresented persons and or negotiate plea bargains with such persons? This edition of IPG will be answering these and other questions about the constitutional and ethical limitations placed on prosecutors when seeking to contact represented and unrepresented persons. Assisting me in the presentation will be Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Adam Wright who will be acting as this edition's moderator. This edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide will be providing 70 minutes of MCLE ethics credits. Thanks for joining me, Adam. Uh, Should we start with the constitutional or the ethical limits first? Well, Jeff, we're going to be spending most of our time talking about the ethical limits. Uh, But since the ethical rules are tied in some ways to the constitutional limitations and, in effect, are an overlay upon the constitutional limitations, why don't I start off by asking about what constitutional limits exist on prosecutors talking with persons suspected of having committed crimes? Sounds good to me. What's your first question? My first question is, does the Sixth Amendment prevent us from communicating with persons who are represented by counsel? It can. The Sixth Amendment's right to counsel does prevent us from communicating with a represented defendant without getting a waiver of the right to counsel. However, it does not prevent us from communicating with someone until the Sixth Amendment attaches, and it doesn't attach until a prosecution is commenced. So you use that phrase, a prosecution is commenced. When is a prosecution commenced? Well, the commencement of prosecution is pegged to the initiation of adversary judicial criminal proceedings. That could be a formal charge, preliminary examination, uh, indictment, information, uh, arraignment. Uh, In California, basically, it's when a complaint has been filed. Okay, so in general, then, if a person has not yet been charged with a crime, you're saying the Sixth Amendment of the federal Constitution would not prohibit us from speaking with that person about the crime? Correct. The Sixth Amendment does not. The Fifth Amendment can in certain circumstances, and rule of professional conduct, which we're going to be talking about later, 4.2 might, but not the Sixth Amendment. Okay, so what if the person has not yet been charged, but the person has retained counsel? Does the Sixth Amendment prevent communications in that circumstance? No. Neither the police nor prosecutors are precluded by the Sixth Amendment from contacting and interviewing uncharged persons, even though... Uh, the person may have been arrested, notwithstanding the fact that the person may have retained counsel. What if a person is sitting in custody on one offense and he's been charged for that offense, but the officer wants to interview the person about a different offense? Again, the Sixth Amendment would not bar such contact. Uh, It's offense-specific. Even if the crime being discussed is related to the crime for which the defendant has been charged, communication about The related, uncharged offense is not barred by the Sixth Amendment. So so then what about just 
the contact itself. Once the Sixth Amendment has attached, can law enforcement officers contact the defendant about the offense? Yes. According to the United States Supreme Court in Montejo versus Louisiana, which is a case from uh, 2009, the Sixth Amendment does not prevent law enforcement officers from contacting a person, whether the person's in or out of custody, about the very case with which the person has been charged. Now, of course, law enforcement officers may not speak to a suspect regarding the case with which he's charged unless they obtain a waiver of the suspect's Sixth Amendment right to counsel. And if the suspect's in custody, law enforcement still must provide Miranda warnings and obtain a waiver of Miranda rights. Although, if the defendant waives his Miranda rights, there's not no requirement that the officers obtain a separate waiver of the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to counsel. It's considered included in the waiver of the Miranda rights. So it sounds like police can do it after the Sixth Amendment has attached, but can we as prosecutors do it as well? Arguably, the Sixth Amendment would not prevent us from making the same kind of contact as law enforcement so long as there's a waiver. But we would be barred from doing so by a rule of professional conduct 4.2, the so-called no-contact rule with represented parties. Uh, As I mentioned, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later. Jeff, you mentioned that in certain circumstances, the Fifth Amendment right to counsel might prevent us from contacting a person who is not yet charged with a crime. How does the Fifth Amendment right to counsel differ from the Sixth Amendment right to counsel? The Fifth Amendment right to counsel protects someone from having to undergo custodial interrogation without an attorney. It attaches as soon as someone is subject to custodial interrogation. It doesn't require pending charges to attach. So, regardless of whether the interrogation is going to be conducted by a law enforcement officer or a prosecutor, before a person can be interrogated in custody, the person must waive his Fifth Amendment right to counsel. Is that the only way the Fifth Amendment right to counsel protects against being interrogated outside the presence of counsel? No. Under the rule adopted by uh, the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Edwards versus Arizona, uh, a rule that was modified in the case of Maryland versus Schatzer, if a person invokes his Fifth Amendment right to counsel right before or during custodial interrogation, neither law enforcement nor a prosecutor may initiate contact with the defendant and conduct a custodial interview with the defendant about the offense for which he was arrested or any other offense, at least for a period of 14 days. The rationale behind this rule is that once a suspect indicates that he's not capable of undergoing custodial questioning without advice of counsel, any later waiver that has come at police request is considered itself the product of the inherently compelling pressures and will be considered involuntary. Why 14 days? It seems kind of arbitrary. To a large extent, it is. But that's what the U.S. Supreme Court held in Maryland versus Schatzer. The court said that if a person invoked his Fifth Amendment right to counsel during custodial interrogation, nobody from law enforcement, an officer or prosecutor, can initiate recontact about any crime with the person unless the person has been released from custody, as that term's been defined in the Miranda line of cases, for a period of 14 days, at least if the person is being subjected to a second round of custodial interrogation. However, there are some unanswered questions left regarding how the rule should be applied because Schatzer's rule arose 
based on specific factual circumstances that were existing in Schatzer. Can you tell us about what those unanswered questions were? Uh, yes. Well, uh, there were certain circumstances that gave rise to these questions. First, it was undisputed that the defendant in Schatzer was in, and I'm quoting, custody, unquote, for Miranda and Edwards' rule purposes. That is, the interviews took place while the defendant was subject to circumstances creating those inherent pressures unique to custodial interrogation. So that left open the question of whether the 14-day rule has any application when the second interview is not custodial interrogation, but simply a non-custodial interview. Second, Schatzer made it clear that just because someone is incarcerated, that doesn't mean that the person has not been released from custody for purposes of the 14-day rule. Someone, like the, the guy in Schatzer, who had been convicted and was serving time in prison, can be viewed as having been released from custody if, and I'm really kind of shortcutting here, the place of incarceration is basically the person's home and the person has been returned to the general population for a period of time that is the equivalent of being released from incarceration for 14 days. However, they left open the question of exactly when 14 days in a prison or jail will be considered the same as release from incarceration completely. Third, Schatzer left open the question of whether, in trying to figure out if the 14-day rule applies when a person uh, is incarcerated, if it makes a difference whether the person is awaiting trial in county jail instead of spending time in prison post-conviction like the guy in Schatzer. And a related sub-question that they left open was whether, if a person is awaiting trial in county jail on the crimes for which the person was interviewed, does it make a difference if the person would still remain incarcerated for some other reason than uh, because he had been arrested for the crimes for which he was interrogated? So, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be spending most of this podcast discussing the ethical limits on contact with represented and unrepresented persons. So I'm not going to ask for your analysis, Jeff, of the cases bearing on, on those open issues. But if a police officer asks a prosecutor whether he or she can go interview someone who has invoked their right to counsel during custodial interrogation, I would recommend a careful review of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide memo accompanying this podcast to figure out what the competing arguments and cases are as to each of those open questions and to calibrate your answer in a particular situation based on how you think California courts will eventually answer them. You know, Adam, I did try and include case law from around the country and include arguments on both sides of these various open issues so prosecutors can judge for themselves how best to advise officers seeking to interview someone who has invoked their right to counsel during custodial interrogation. Okay. So then if a suspect has not invoked his right to counsel during custodial interrogation, but only his right to silence... Can law enforcement officers or prosecutors recontact a defendant who has retained counsel without violating his Fifth Amendment right to counsel? Yes. So long as the defendant's invocation of his right to silence was scrupulously honored, and there are a few other factors that weigh in uh, that are considered and must weigh in favor of allowing recontact. What are those factors you just mentioned? Well, whether the police immediately ceased the interrogation. In other words, did the police continue trying to interrogate the suspect or engage in repeated efforts to try and wear down his resistance and make him change his mind. 
Uh, they also consider how much time has passed between the invocation and the recontact, whether the suspect was given a fresh set of warnings, and whether the second interrogation related to a crime that had not been the subject of the earlier interrogation. Okay, so Jeff, we've talked now about some of the constitutional limitations. Let's move on to questions about the ethical rules governing our contact with represented persons. For decades now, we've operated under some version of the so-called no-contact rule, which, generally speaking, prevents attorneys from communicating with represented parties. What is the purpose behind this no-contact rule? Well, the no-contact rule is necessary uh, to protect the attorney-client relationship and the proper functioning of the administration of justice. It's designed to permit an attorney to function adequately in uh, his or her proper role and to prevent the imposing attorney from impeding that functioning. Like, if a party's counsel is present when an opposing attorney is communicating with a, with a party, then a party's counsel can easily correct any error in the communication or correct the effect of a communication by calling attention to counteracting elements which, which might exist. Basically, the rule is supposed to prevent a person from being taken advantage of by opposing counsel and to help preserve privileged information. So when we're trying to figure out in any given situation whether this rule should bar the communication at issue, it's a good idea to keep in the back of our head whether application of the rule in a particular circumstance will further the purposes behind the rule. So, so then right now, as we sit here and, and until November, we're still operating under Rule 2-100, which states, while representing a client, a member shall not communicate directly or indirectly about the subject of the representation with a party the member knows to be represented by another lawyer in the matter unless the member has the consent of the other lawyer. So does the new rule, Rule 4.2, differ from the old Rule 2-100 in this regard? Uh, in most ways, the, the rules are the same. But because of a change in language in the rule itself uh, between 2-100, which is what we're actually under right now, and 4.2, which we're going to be under in, in a little while, uh, and because of new commentary to the rule, there are some potential differences. Now, keep in mind that in many ways, there's the rule and there's the commentary to the, to the rule. But even though the commentary to the rule is not part of the rule, it is very, very important in how the rule is going to be interpreted. So then as for the language itself, what was the change in the language of the rule? Well, the primary thrust of the rule is contained in subdivision A of 4.2, and that closely parallels the language in 2.100. However, instead of using the term party, it uses the term person. And that change, coupled with the language from the commentary, makes it clear that a person will be considered represented for purposes of the rule if they've retained an attorney to deal with the crime or issue that's the subject of the communication, not just when they're charged. In other words, they don't have to be a party to a suit. This will have ramifications, which we will be discussing. So how does subdivision A of the new rule impact our ability to talk to represented and charged defendants? Subdivision A of 4.2 doesn't really change things in that regard. In general, it prohibits prosecutors and any other lawyer from communicating directly or indirectly about the subject of representation with a person the lawyer knows to be represented by another lawyer in the matter unless the lawyer has the consent of the other opposing lawyer. So, in general, 
unless a different subdivision than A of 4.2 applies. We, prosecutors, cannot talk to a represented defendant who has been charged with a crime about that crime. Before we get to a different subdivision of 4.2, let me ask a few questions about that subdivision A that we were just talking about. You said the rule states that we cannot communicate indirectly with a represented person about the subject matter of the representation. What types of communications are indirect? Well, that's explained in the common the commentary to a Rule 4.2, which says, and I'm quoting here, the prohibition against communicating indirectly with a person represented by counsel in paragraph A is intended to address situations where a lawyer seeks to communicate with a represented person through an intermediary, such as an agent, investigator, or the lawyer's client. In this, in this regard, Rule 4.2 doesn't appear to substantially change Rule 2-100. Now, Rule 2-100 has been interpreted as applying to law enforcement members who act as alter egos of the prosecutor. But it doesn't bar contact between charged and represented defendants and law enforcement members, at least law enforcement members who are not employed by the prosecutor's office, who are acting independently of the prosecutor or, or counsel. Will investigators with a district attorney's office then fall into the category of an intermediary, such as an agent or investigator, for purposes of Rule 4.2a? Yes, for sure. What about other members of law enforcement um, agency members? Can they be rendered intermediaries? Yes. Uh, Whether members of other law enforcement agencies will qualify as intermediaries or agents is going to turn on how much direction they get from the prosecuting agency. The greater the involvement of a prosecutor in directing an officer's interview with a represented person, the greater the likelihood the officer will be viewed as an agent or intermediary for the prosecutor. So then if an officer contacts a prosecutor, let's say, and asks if she is permitted to contact a particular defendant, and the prosecutor gives them legal advice such as, yes, you are legally entitled to contact the suspect under the authority of Montejo, does that convert the officer into an intermediary so that the officer uh, who makes the contact, it is the same as if the prosecutor made the contact? Uh, no. I mean, just because a, a, a police seek the advice of a prosecutor before conducting like a jailhouse interview, that doesn't mean that that uh, officer is acting as an agent in the prosecution. So, if, for example, there's this case out of Connecticut holding prosecutors didn't violate their equivalent of Ethics Rule 4.2, where the defendant initiated contact with the police and the prosecutor did not attempt either to contact the defendant or supervise the police in their communication with the defendant, but only uh, answered questions concerning the legality of responding to the defendant's request to talk to the police. And there's another case from Illinois where the court said the mere fact the prosecutor has knowledge of a police operation does not make the police and uh, police officers Uh, an agent or agents of the prosecution. On the other hand, there's a case from Utah where government agents uh, were held to be alter egos of the prosecutor, where in in that case, the the prosecutors, they authorized the interview. They they provided the agents with like half a dozen questions that they should pose to the defendant. And and a couple of those questions dealt with the attorney-client privilege. And they said in that case, yeah, they were alter egos. And then there's a case from Minnesota as well, uh, interpreting their version of the rule, where the court stated uh, police contact 
with a suspect that can be attributed to the prosecutor uh, will occur when the prosecutor orders or ratifies the police conduct. So it sounds like a, a tricky area. Do you have any advice to prosecutors when dealing with officers who are seeking information about communications with represented defendants? Yes. Look, if you're confident that even if the officer is considered an agent of the prosecution, the communication and issue is not going to violate 4.2, then advise away. But if the communication might possibly be improper if done by a prosecutor, but would be okay if done by a law enforcement officer, in other words, where it's unclear whether a communication between the person and the prosecutor is authorized, take the safer course of informing the officer that any decision to contact the represented person is solely the decision of the officer and that a rule of professional conduct forbids us from even indirectly contacting charged and represented persons through an intermediary about the subject matter of the representation. And, well, we can answer an officer's legal questions regarding whether it's lawful to contact a charged and represented person. Prosecutors should still uh, hold back from telling the officer what questions to ask uh, and, and not even advise the officer to go ahead and interview that person. In any event, where, where it's unclear whether we can properly contact the person, don't seek out and ask that uh, police officer to conduct an interview with a represented and charged suspect, even if an interview by the officers would not violate the Sixth or Fifth Amendment. Leave it, leave it to the officers to make that decision. Okay. So, Jeff, we've talked a lot about contacts with represented persons. Does Rule 4.2 prevent contacts between prosecutors and unrepresented persons? Yeah, I mean, by its own terms, 4.2 only prohibits lawyers from communicating with a person the lawyer knows to be represented by another lawyer in the matter. So uh, 4.2 can't prevent prosecutors from speaking with persons who are not represented by an attorney. And no case held that there's an ethical bar to a prosecutor conducting an investigatory interview with either an out-of-custody or an in-custody suspect who has not been charged with a crime, and who is not represented by counsel. Don't forget, though, I'm only talking about what the rule prohibits. As we indicated earlier, there may be a constitutional bar to a prosecutor reinitiating an investigatory interview with a person in custody if that person has previously invoked their Fifth Amendment right to counsel during custodial interrogation. And even... Uh, in the situation where you have an in-custody defendant who hasn't invoked his right to counsel, the prosecutor engaging in an investigatory interview still must advise the defendant of his Miranda rights and get a waiver of those rights before speaking with them. And then the Sixth Amendment would prevent prosecutorial contact with a person who's been charged with a crime but is not yet represented if there has not been a waiver of the Sixth Amendment right. And finally... Uh, Rule 4.3, which we haven't talked about yet, but which we'll talk about at the end of the presentation, provides certain limitations on what kinds of communications can occur during an interview between a prosecutor and an unrepresented person. But what if we don't know that the person's represented? Does Rule 4.2 prevent contacts between a prosecutor or their agents and the represented person in that situation? No. The prosecutor must know the person is represented in order to run afoul of Rule 4.2. What if we should have known the person is represented? doesn't really matter. Actual knowledge is required in order to find us in violation of the rule. However, 
if there are reasons for believing that the prosecutor should have known about the representation, this potentially could be used as circumstantial evidence of actual knowledge. So, if there's any indication the person might be represented and that our contact would be impermissible if the person was represented, we're supposed to clarify whether the person is represented before we begin asking substantive questions of the person. So, Jeff, you've probably seen this situation, right, where a person engaged in criminal activity uh, chooses to hire an attorney in anticipation of being charged with a crime or for some other reason. Can that person who is not yet named in a civil suit or not yet charged with a crime ever be considered a represented person for purposes of Rule 4.2? And then if so, can a prosecutor or an agent of the prosecutor nevertheless speak to the person outside the presence of the person's attorney? All right, Adam, I'm going to deal with those questions one at a time. One of the differences between Rule 4.2 and its predecessor, Rule 2-100, as I mentioned, is that the former prohibits communications with a person, while the latter prohibited communications with a party. Also, the comment section to Rule 4.2 differs somewhat in this regard from the comment section to Rule 2-100. The commentary to Rule 2-100 said, as used in paragraph A, the subject of the representation, matter, and party are not limited to a litigation context. Now, this language is repeated in the comment section to Rule 4.2. However, the comment to Rule 4.2 expands on that concept by saying, again, I'm quoting, the rule applies to communication with any person, whether or not a party to a formal adjudicative proceeding, contract, or negotiation who is represented by counsel concerning the matter to which the communication relates. Although under Rule 2-100, there was some question whether the term party could be reasonably applied to someone who wasn't charged with a crime. That is no longer the case. Now it's clear. Rule 4.2 applies to persons, not parties. And the expanded commentary to Rule 4.2 says it applies to any communication with any person who is represented by counsel concerning the matter to which the communication relates. In light of that, it's fairly clear an uncharged person who's retained counsel is a represented person for purposes of the for purposes of rule 4.2 regardless of whether legal or adversarial proceedings have commenced against the person. Then let's go to the next question. Assuming a person who is not charged with an offense can be deemed a represented person, can a prosecutor ever communicate with such a person? Well, to answer that, we got to look at a different section of rule 4.2c which states and I'm quoting and this is part of subdivision C, uh, paragraph 2, read together, it says, the rule shall not prohibit communications otherwise authorized by law or a court order. And, a, and the comment to Rule 4.2 says, subdivision C recognizes that statutory schemes, case law, and court orders may authorize communications between a lawyer and a person that would otherwise be subject to the rule. In other words, otherwise prohibited. It goes on to say the law also recognizes that prosecutors and other government lawyers are authorized to contact represented persons, either directly or through investigative agents and informants in the context of investigative activities, as limited by relevant federal and state constitutions, statutes, rules, and case law. And then it, it keeps going. It says... 
The rule is not intended to preclude communications with represented persons in the course of such legitimate investigative activities as authorized by law. The comment to Rule 2-100 wasn't as expansive in this regard, but it's not inconsistent with Rule 4.2. In other words, bottom line here, the comment to Rule 4.2 expressly recognizes that prosecutors and their agents can communicate with represented persons as part of their investigative activities, so long as that communication isn't otherwise barred by constitution or statutes or case law. It doesn't purport to outline all the governing constitutional provisions or case law, but it does provide examples of two Ninth Circuit cases, uh, a case called United States versus Corona and a case called United States versus Kaleo, that illustrate the type of communications during investigative activities that the rule is not intended to preclude. Wait a minute. The comment, why is the comment citing to Ninth Circuit cases? I thought we were governed by California cases and California state bar opinions when it comes to our state ethical rules. Adam, a a little background here. Ninth Circuit cases sometimes have to interpret California's no-contact rule of ethics because federal prosecutors are bound by ethical rules of the state where the federal prosecutor is practicing. This, this is a federal law. It's known as the, the McDade, McDade uh, Amendment. Corona and Talia, Talia, Taleo were cases where the Ninth Circuit was interpreting Rule 2-100. These cases themselves are, are not binding authority on how a California state bar ethics rule is to be interpreted. But the comment, by incorporating the decisions into the commentary to Rule 4.2 as examples of what investigative activities are permitted. By doing that, the state bar has effectively rendered the holdings in those cases binding authority, at least when it comes to state bar prosecutions. Accordingly, uh, prosecutors should be aware of what happened in those cases if they want to know for sure what we can and cannot do when it comes to communicating with represented but uncharged defendants. And also, it'll give you an idea of what issues are still up in the air. So what happened in the Corona case? Well, Corona, uh, that's a case where uh, the prosecutors were investigating the, the defendant who it was a fairly well-known case. It involved the sheriff of Orange County. Uh, he was being investigated for violating several federal statutes relating to alleged corruption. He had retained an attorney and the prosecutors knew it. But still, the prosecutors signed a cooperation plea agreement with someone who had been engaged in bribing the defendant, who had also had been, been being investigated, and they basically turned him. So they make this plea agreement with this, with this informant, let's just call him, and the prosecutors instructed the informant to act as an undercover agent, meet with the defendant, and make surreptitious recordings of the meetings. After two meetings, the prosecutors provided this informant with two fake subpoena attachments, and these subpoenas identified certain records that the cooperator was instructed to tell the defendant he had been subpoenaed to produce, presumably to get him talking. So all these meetings take place before a defendant was indicted, though it was undisputed that the defendant was a represented party for purposes of Rule 2-100. The defendant moved to suppress the statements he made during these meetings and to disqualify the lead prosecutor, basically because he was saying the statements of the the defendant were allegedly obtained in violation of Rule 2-100. Then what did the Corona Court hold? 
they didn't adopt a bright line rule. They didn't say, hey, in every case where there's pre-indictment, non-custodial communications by prosecutors and investigators with the representative parties, that there could never be a, no, a violation of the no-contact rule. Rather, they took a case-by-case adjudication approach regarding whether such communications would violate the rule. However, they did observe that previous Ninth Circuit decisions more often than not held that pre-indictment contact between undercover agents or cooperating witnesses and represented suspects was okay. And then they found in the case before it, there had been no violation of the rule, even though there had been these use of fake subpoenas. In support of the conclusion, the court in Corona noted that, that there were no direct communications between the prosecutors and the defendant and that the indirect communications did not resemble an interrogation. They also pointed out that, look, it would be antithetical to the administration of justice to allow a a wrongdoer to immunize himself against such undercover operations simply by letting it be known that he's retained counsel. And they said this is especially true when the person under investigation is attempting to suborn perjury. So what happened in the Taleo case? Well, in Taleo, uh, there the government and defense counsel the, was a case where they were investigating this corporation for, uh, involving both, I guess, criminal and civil violations. And they had already entered into talks with the defense counsel uh, about these uh, potential crimes or civil, uh, civil suits, and they had begun extensive negotiations towards settlement as part of a civil suit. But they hadn't yet indicted the defendant or the, the defendant corporation. Now, prior to indicting the defendant, a prosecutor was contacted by an employee of the defendant corporation. The employee initiated a communication with the government for the purposes of disclosing that corporate officers were attempting to suborn perjury and obstruct justice. The employee explained she didn't want to be represented by the same attorney who represented the corporation. How could the employee be represented by the same attorney who represented the corporation in the first place? Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but basically... Corporate attorneys who represent a corporation are deemed to automatically represent various designated employees in the corporation, and who they represent depends to a certain extent on the employee's role in the corporation. As I said, we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, because 4.2 gives us some guidelines on when we can and cannot contact members of an organization that's represented by an attorney. Okay, then back to the story of Taleo. All right, back to Taleo. So... The prosecutor tells the employee uh, that she has a right to be represented by an attorney and offered to get her an attorney, but the employee declined representation. While the the DA, it was actually a U.S. attorney, while the interview was ongoing, an attorney for the corporation demanded to speak with the employee. The, The prosecutor informed the employee, hey, you know, there's corporate attorneys out there and they want to speak with you. But the employee said she didn't want to speak to the corporate attorney. Prosecutor checks with her supervisor before continuing the interview. Supervisor tells her, go ahead, continue the interview outside the attorney's presence. Now, during the remainder of the interview, the employer, the employee gave further instances of wrongdoing by her employers and explained how they had concealed the truth from investigators and the corporate attorney. After defendant gets indicted, 
he makes a motion to dismiss the indictment, asserting the contact between the prosecutor and the employee violated Rule 2-100 and his company's constitutional rights. Trial court denies the motion, but finds a violation of Rule 2-100. The trial court initially said it was going to refer the prosecutor to the state bar, but then they decided against that. But they did say they were planning to inform the jury of the prosecutor's misconduct and instruct the jury to take it into account in assessing the employee's credibility at trial. Before that happened, uh, the prosecutor then appealed the finding that she acted unethically and it violated 2-100. What was the holding in Taleo? Well, like the later decision in Corona, the Taleo court declined to announce a categorical rule excusing all such pre-indictment communications from any ethical review. They also took the approach of applying the ethical rule through a case-by-case adjudication uh, in in general. They found that Rule 2-100 potentially applied applied to the prosecutor's uh, contact, even though it was pre-indictment and non-custodial, because at the time it occurred, there were fully defined adversarial roles, there were impending grand jury proceedings, and there was an awareness on the part of the responsible government actors of the corporation's ongoing legal representation. There was an awareness on the part of the prosecutor that there had been this ongoing legal representation. But notwithstanding all that, the Taleo court held that Rule 2-100 did not prohibit the prosecutor's conduct in the instant case. Why not? Well, for a couple reasons. First, Taleo recognized that the general rule is that prosecutors are authorized by law, under that authorized by law exception of subdivision C, to employ legitimate investigative techniques in conducting or supervising criminal investigations. Second, they placed a lot of emphasis on on the fact that the corporate employee had come forward to disclose attempts by the corporation's officers to coerce her to give false testimony. They reasoned that Look, there's a general the general rationale between Rule 2-100, the, the no-contact rule in general, is to support the attorney-client relationship. And that's not applicable once you've got an employee who makes known her desire to give truthful information about potential criminal activity she's witnessed. Once that happens, there's a clear conflict of interest between the employee and the corporation. And when you have that conflict of interest, the corporate counsel cannot continue to represent both the employee and the corporation. So under those circumstances, the corporation employee cannot share an attorney, and the ex parte contacts uh, with the employee by the prosecution can't be deemed like in any way to affect the attorney-client relationship between the corporation and its counsel. In that setting, the court said, the corporation's interest in the attorney-client relationship did not provide a basis for application of the no-contact rule. Now, it doesn't mean, and the Taleo court cautioned, that it's okay for government officials to approach an employee and initiate communications whenever there's a possible conflict of interest between the employee and the corporation. So, Jeff, what conclusions can or cannot be drawn from Corona and Taleo regarding whether prosecutors or their agents can contact represented but uncharged persons? Okay. First, it is very unlikely, not automatic, but very unlikely that Rule 4.2 – forbids non-custodial communications between represented but uncharged persons and prosecutors or their agents. 
The factors that can play a role in deciding whether that contact is proper uh, include whether the communication occurred during undercover investigation, whether the person was contacted directly or indirectly by the prosecutor, whether the communication resembled an interrogation, whether the represented person initiated the contact, and uh, if the represented person was an employee of a business or corporation, whether the person who initiated the contact was doing so in order to disclose a serious crime by their employer, and then lastly, whether at the time of the contact there were fully defined adversarial roles between the government and the represented person. Second, since we know uh, it's not even automatic that Rule 4.2 is inapplicable when the communication occurs between agents of the prosecution and uncharged persons in a non-custodial setting, it follows that it also will not automatically be applied, Rule 4.2 will not automatically be applied when the communications are overt or directly between a prosecutor and an uncharged but represented person or when the communications occur in a custodial setting. And then third, it's important to understand that neither Corona nor Taleo stand for the proposition that direct contacts between an uncharged but represented person while the person is in custody are prohibited. But is it safe to say, Jeff, that Rule 4.2 will not be violated in almost all cases involving investigatory interviews by undercover agents acting on their own or at the behest of prosecutors? Yeah, that's a fair statement, Adam. Our AG has opined that such contact doesn't violate the rule, although it was done in an opinion that issued before 4.2 came out and substituted the term persons for parties. And courts interpreting comparable no-contact rules have overwhelmingly concluded that the no-contact rule does not prevent non-custodial pre-indictment communications by undercover agents with represented parties which occur in the course of legitimate criminal investigations. What about if it's not an undercover operation but an overt communication, let's say, between a prosecutor and an uncharged but represented defendant? That is also uh, likely to be okay, but it's not certain. There is one Utah case out there I mentioned uh, where they did find there was a violation of Utah's no-contact rule where there was an overt non-custodial communication with a represented person, even though that was pre-charging and it was done by agents who were acting on the instruction of prosecutors, where the prosecutors had previously tried to subpoena the person to testify before a grand jury and were rebuffed in that attempt by the person's counsel. The Utah court, while it was interpreting the Utah version of the rule, said its result would be consistent with the holding in Taleo. However, uh, there are other cases finding such contact to be permissible, And one of those cases characterized the Utah case as an isolated, unusual case that reflects an egregious violation of the no-contact rule. And when you think about it, Adam, really, it doesn't make sense when you consider the purposes behind the rule to allow surreptitious undercover contacts, but not overt contacts pre-charging. Why do you say that? Because there's not a significant distinction between overt and covert communications insofar as the reasons behind the no-contact rule are concerned. First, to the extent that the no-contact rule is designed to protect a defendant from the danger of being tricked into giving his case away by opposing counsel, there's even a greater risk of being duped by an undercover operation than an overt contact. In fact, a defense counsel who's representing a person 
uh, is actually more likely to be able to step in and protect the attorney-client relationship if the government overtly is speaking to the client than if the government's doing so undercover. So if you look at the purposes behind the rule, they're not furthered by drawing a distinction between overt and covert contact. So why draw this distinction? They should be treated the same from a rational standpoint as generally, generally not violating the rule. Does it make a difference whether the uncharged but represented person is in custody at the time of the communication? Well, some courts have drawn a distinction between contacts with an uncharged represented person who's out of custody and one who's in custody. Should make a difference. California AG has opined that during the investigative phase of a criminal or civil law enforcement proceeding, the rule does not prohibit a public prosecutor or an investigator under the direction of a public prosecutor from communicating with a person known to be represented by counsel concerning the subject of the representation without the consent of such counsel, regardless of whether the person is in custody. However, this opinion may no longer be viewed as persuasive on the issue because it was interpreting Rule 2-100, which used the term parties instead of persons, and it came out before the comment to Rule 4.2 cited to cases holding even non-custodial communications between investigators and represented persons during the investigative stage are not automatically outside the scope of the rule. Bottom line here, again, it's, look, it's an open question whether direct contacts by a prosecutor with represented but uncharged persons who are in custody are going to be permitted. So if that's the case, you know, prosecutors may want to defer to the investigating officers in making such contact. Okay, so sometimes a charged defendant who is represented by counsel will want to speak directly with the prosecutor about his pending case. Uh, the defendant may lack confidence in his appointed counsel and seek direct contact, believing maybe he can secure a better deal than his lawyer. Uh, the defendant may be getting impatient with the progress of the case and thinks negotiating directly with the prosecutor will speed things up, for example. Or let's say the defendant may be represented by an attorney hired by a cartel and he wants to inform on the cartel. Does California uh, Rule of Professional Conduct, Rule 4.2, prohibit contact between represented persons and prosecutors if the represented person initiates the contact and waives application of the rule? Well, a comment to Rule 4.2 says the general bar in communicating with a represented person applies even though, even though the represented person initiates or consents to the communication. It doesn't make a difference that the charged and represented defendant waives his right to have his attorney present. Although the, the fact that the contact was initiated by the defendant, it could potentially be a circumstance in mitigation in a state bar prosecution for communicating with a represented person. So if a defense attorney is represented by a corrupt attorney, who is working for the cartel and does not have the best interests of his client at heart, can we do nothing? Not necessarily. In a case from the Ninth Circuit, a uh, case called Lopez, the court indicated that if a prosecutor obtains approval from a court to respond to a defendant's request to meet without defense counsel, the court indicated it might in some circumstances be okay. Although they didn't find that possible exception to exist in the case before it, because in the case before it, the prosecutor had materially misled the judge in seeking authorization uh, to communicate by indicating that defense counsel was being paid for by a third party with interests that were inimical to those of the defendant. However, 
Lopez was interpreting Rule 2-100 and not Rule 4.2. And unlike Rule 2-100, Rule 4.2 specifically permits communications with represented persons if authorized by a court. So for prosecutors thinking about communicating with a charged represented defendant who is seeking direct communication outside the presence of, of his attorney, a prosecutor uh, should obtain court approval for any communication with the defendant. And the prosecutor should advise the person they're about to talk to about his or her, his or her right to obtain substitute, substitute counsel. And it may also be okay to ask the court to a, appoint a second attorney for the sole purpose of representing the defendant during communications with the prosecutor. So, Jeff, what if we have this situation where there is an individual who's represented and charged in one case, and they're a witness in our case? Uh, Does Rule 4.2 prevent contact between the prosecutor and this witness? You know, Adam, this is probably the most important question posed in this podcast. Whether prosecutors can talk to a person who's in custody and is represented on one crime, but where the prosecutor only wants to talk to that person as a witness in a different crime. It's, it's the most common question I get about contacting represented persons. So let me say this without equivocation. As long as a prosecutor avoids discussing the crime with which defendant is charged, the contact can be done and often should be done. We shouldn't refrain from trying to find out the truth about a crime just because a person is represented on a totally different crime. The attorney who's representing that person on the charge crime has different obligations than we have. They're not concerned with helping prosecutors solve other crimes. They're not going to hesitate to tell the defendant not to cooperate unless the prosecution cuts a deal on the charge crime. The defendant could be a witness to a mass murder and facing charges on a suspended license, and this is going to be the advice of most defense attorneys. Nothing wrong with them given that advice, they've got their obligations. But also, nothing bars us from communicating directly with that witness about what he or she knows as long as we don't discuss the pending charges against this uh, defendant come witness. Now, in the past, there's some, there, there had been some controversy over this issue. Two California Supreme Court cases, uh, while 2-100 was still on the books, put the issue to, to bed. But Rule 4.2 is the final nail in the coffin on this issue. It makes it clear it only applies when communicating about the subject matter of the representation. And the comment to Rule 4.2 expressly says, and I'm quoting here, Adam, the rule does not prohibit communications with a represented person concerning matters outside the representation. But what if the defendant cum witness wants to discuss what is going to happen with his underlying crime? Or what if a defendant cum witness tries to negotiate a deal on his own in exchange for his testimony as a witness? What do we do then? Well, you've just highlighted two potential problems that can crop up when we are speaking with a represented in-custody person uh, who's been contacted because he or she is a potential witness in an unrelated case. If the defendant cum witness begins asking questions regarding what benefit he might receive on his charge case for cooperating as a witness in the unrelated case, either the prosecutor or the prosecutor's agent has to shut this aspect of the conversation down immediately and explain 
to the defendant cum witness that the prosecutor or agent is legally barred from discussing the charged case with the defendant in the absence of his or her counsel. In fact, if you go and make contact with this defendant uh, cum witness uh, without uh, contacting their defense attorney, it is best if you begin your conversation by telling this defendant cum witness that you will be not asking him any questions about the pending charges and that is prohibited for you to do so. If the defendant, if this defendant cum witness persists in discussing the charge case, you've got to terminate that conversation. And as a hint here, a little advice, tape record the conversation from beginning to to end so you can insulate uh, yourself if you're a prosecutor or a a police agent from being accused of a constitutional or ethical violation. What was the second potential problem you mentioned? Well, sometimes uh, somebody a prosecutor suspects is just a witness will, upon further discussion, reveal himself to be a participant in another crime. If the defendant's in custody and there's a reasonable chance the questions are likely to incriminate him, uh, you got to make sure you give him Miranda warnings. And you also have to make sure you're not in violation of the Edwards rule, which we talked about earlier. If the witness suddenly reveals his participation in a crime, you need to stop the interview and give Miranda warnings. And before you go in and interview this witness, you got to make sure in advance whether or not uh, – to, to, you need to check to see whether the defendant has invoked his Fifth Amendment right to counsel so that uh, any kind of custodial interrogation would be improper. Jeff, it's not unusual, especially in cases involving family sex assault or child abuse, that the parent of the child hires an attorney to, quote, represent, unquote, the child. Often the attorney hired to represent the child is affiliated with or really friendly with the attorney representing the parent and not surprisingly informs the victim of the rules preventing incarceration for refusing to testify. Can we talk to the victim, notwithstanding the attorney for the victim telling us not to speak with the victim? As I mentioned earlier, the comment to Rule 4.2 expressly provides the no-contact rule applies to communications with any person, whether or not a party to a formal adjudicated proceeding, negotiation, etc., who is represented by counsel concerning the matter to which the communication relates. Now, I couldn't find any cases directly addressing whether the rule prohibits a prosecutor from directly contacting a child victim who is represented by an attorney, where the attorney who's represented the child victim has said they don't want us, uh, the prosecutors, to be talking to the victim. The answer to whether it's okay may turn on how broadly the scope of the representation is interpreted. We can expect the attorney for the child victim to argue that any communication between the prosecutor and the child about anything involved in the criminal case must be with the consent of the child's attorney. On the other hand, a plausible, I'm not saying it's dispositive, but a plausible argument can be made that if the prosecutor is only going to be speaking about, uh, to the witness about what occurred and does not seek to persuade the child to testify during that communication, then the communication is not really about the subject of the representation which is focused on whether it's in the best interest of the child to testify. Although, I'll I'll say this, in light of the language in Rule 4.2, giving representation a broad interpretation, it's going to be more difficult for us to to convincingly argue the prosecutor is permitted to speak to the child about testifying 
outside the presence of counsel if the prosecutor is going to be trying to persuade the child to testify. The other thing prosecutors uh, may be able to argue, uh, which would justify the contact, is the authorized by law exception, especially if the case is still in the investigative stage, under a like parallel rationale to, to the one that permits a prosecutor to contact a person who's represented before the person's charged with the crime. But this uh, remains an open question. Like I said, no cases on it yet. So then what do you suggest we do when an attorney representing a child molest victim is best friends with the defense attorney representing the father and is shutting down our communications with the child? If the victim is a child, it may be possible, although not necessarily likely, uh, to get a guardian ad litem to be appointed to advise the child when communicating with the prosecutor instead of the arguably compromised attorney hired by the parent. If there already exists a guardian ad litem, it may be possible to interview the witness in the presence of the guardian rather than the retained attorney. The Welfare and Institution Code sections that might allow us to do this, I included them in the IPG accompanying the, the podcast, the memo. Since, it open, since it's an open question whether it would violate Rule 4.2 for a prosecutor to speak with a child witness who's represented by an attorney without permission from the attorney, it might just be easier to seek a court order allowing such communication to take place. This should avoid a violation of 4.2, as Subdivision C of that rule says the rule doesn't prohibit communications otherwise authorized uh, by a court order. Jeff, in companies with corporate counsel, many of the people working for the company may be viewed as being represented by the corporate counsel. So if we're conducting a criminal or civil investigation into a company, let's say, uh, what are the rules regarding who of the persons working for the company we can talk to without running afoul of the no-contact rule? All right, so I'm going to be quoting uh, quite a bit from Subdivision B of Rule 4.2, which provides... In the case of a represented corporation, partnership, association, or other private or governmental organization, Rule 4.2 prohibits communications with a current officer, director, partner, or managing agent of the organization. And they define managing agent in the rules as meaning an employee, member, agent, or other constituent of an organization with substantial discretionary authority over decisions that determine organizational policy. Quite a mouthful. The rule also applies to a current employee, member, agent, or other constituent of the organization if the subject of the communication is any act or omission of that person in connection with the matter which may be binding upon or imputed to the organization for purposes of civil or criminal liability. So, for example, in a case involving illegal dumping, the employee who did the dumping may be the lowest person on the totem pole in the the organization, but their actions may subject the organization to civil or criminal liability. So if you're going to be talking to them about that, the rule may apply to that person. So we've talked about existing employees. What about former employees? No, doesn't apply to former employees. Although we have to be careful in that situation and really – in any situation, not ask questions that might implicate the attorney-client privilege. Subdivision B of New Rule 4.2 says that when communicating on behalf of a client, 
with a person who is not represented by counsel, a lawyer shall not seek to obtain privileged or other confidential information the lawyer knows or reasonably should know uh, the person may not reveal without violating a duty to another or which the lawyer is not otherwise entitled to receive. Does Rule 4.2 prohibit prosecutors from communicating with members of the corporation or business being prosecuted without contacting the attorney for the corporation or business if the member is separately represented by their own attorney and, moreover, we get permission from that person's own attorney? No. Permission from either in that circumstance should suffice. Okay. Then does Rule 4.2 prohibit prosecutors from communicating with members of corporations or businesses before the initiation of criminal or civil proceedings? Because a current officer, director, partner, or managing agent of an organization is, for purposes of Rule 4.2, no different than any other represented person, the question of whether a prosecutor can communicate with someone in that category is going to turn on whether the prosecutor can communicate with any represented person in the circumstance. We've already talked about when that can happen. Now, when it comes to current employees, members, agents, or other constituents of the organization, a prosecutor would be permitted to communicate with them anytime they would be permitted to communicate with a current officer, director, partner, or managing agent. But there may be occasions where communication would be permitted with an employee, member, or agent when such communication would not be permitted with, with a person who's an officer, director, partner, or managing agent. Namely, when uh, the subject of the communication is not any act or omission of uh, the person in connection with the matter, which can be binding upon or imputed to the organization for purposes of civil or criminal liability. Now, when it comes to civil proceedings as opposed to criminal proceedings, whether Rule 4.2 will bar communications with represented members of an organization during the investigative phase of a potential civil suit, before the civil suit is filed, that may turn on a variety of factors, including how long the contacts take place before the filing of the civil suit. Can an organization's attorney automatically create an effective blanket representation of every member of the organization simply by asserting the attorney-client privilege on behalf of all members? No. Then does Rule 4.2 only apply when the prosecutor has actual knowledge that an employee of an organization is represented? No. In order to run a file of Rule 4.2 by communicating with a represented member, i.e. one of the constituents of an organization, an attorney must have actual knowledge the member is represented by the organization's counsel. The rule isn't violated just because the attorney should have known that the other person was or would be represented. And knowledge that the organization employs a corporate counsel, in general, doesn't trigger the rule. However, if there's a reason to believe that the employee is represented, that can be considered circumstantial evidence of actual knowledge. So a prosecutor should begin the communication by asking questions geared towards determining whether the member is a current officer, director, partner, or managing agent, or if the member fills a role in the organization such that an act or a mission of the person could be binding upon or imputed to the organization. Can evidence derived from a violation of Rule 4.2 be suppressed? On that basis alone, the answer in 99% of the cases is, is no, at least in California, largely because of uh, Prop 8, which requires, uh, which requires that you can't exclude evidence unless it rises to the violation of the federal constitution in general. Jeff, what should we as prosecutors do if we have doubts about whether an intended communication violates Rule 4.2? Hey, check with the judge to see if they'll authorize the communication. 
But don't you think they're they're going to balk at doing this ex parte? Well, that's possible. But prosecutors can point to the California decisions that are cited in the accompanying IPG memo that have held that attorneys should resolve doubts about whether communications violate the rule by avoiding suspect communications and seeking court guidance. And Rule 4.2's safe harbor provision specifically allows communications with represented persons if authorized by court order. So prosecutors should be able to calm any judicial fears that providing such guidance uh, is inappropriate. Jeff, up until now we've been talking about the ethical rules governing our contact with represented persons. Are there any ethical rules govern- governing our interactions with unrepresented persons? Yes. Uh, there are two rules that impact uh, that question. One is Rule 4.3, and the other is Rule 3.8. Now, Rule 3.8 governs the special responsibilities of prosecutors in general, but two of its subdivisions uh, deal with our obligations when communicating with accused but unrepresented persons. Rule 3.8 is, is a relatively new rule in California. A version, was, a version of it was put into place about a year ago as Rule 5-110, but it's uh, since been renumbered. Rule 4.3, however, is brand new to California. And since neither rule has been interpreted by a California court, we're going to have to look to other jurisdictions that have similar or even identical versions of these rules, most of which are based on the ABA model rules of professional conduct uh, in trying to get guidance to answer some of the issues that might arise. What does Rule 4.3 basically say? When an attorney is communicating on behalf of a client with an unrepresented person, Uh, The rule says the lawyer shall not state or imply that the lawyer is disinterested. And if the lawyer knows or reasonably should know that the unrepresented person incorrectly believes the lawyer is disinterested in the matter, the lawyer shall make reasonable efforts to correct the misunderstanding. It also requires that if the lawyer knows or reasonably should know that the interests of the unrepresented person are in conflict with the interests of the lawyer's client, the lawyer shall not give legal advice to that person other than to advise the other person to get a lawyer. Subdivision B of 4.3 also says the lawyer should not try to get privileged or confidential information from the unrepresented person the lawyer knows or reasonably should know the person may not reveal without violating a duty to another or which the lawyer is not otherwise entitled to receive. You also mentioned a couple subdivisions in Rule 3.8. What do those say? Rule 3.8, subdivision B, says a prosecutor must make reasonable efforts to assure that the accused has been advised of the right to and the procedure for obtaining counsel and has been given reasonable opportunity to obtain counsel. Subdivision C says a prosecutor may not seek to obtain from an unrepresented accused a waiver of important pretrial rights unless the tribunal has approved the appearance of the accused in propria persona. Uh, In other words, we shouldn't be trying to get this waiver unless uh, a court has authorized the person to represent themselves. Are prosecutors prohibited from questioning an unrepresented person, charged or uncharged, by rules 4.3 or 3.8? Before I answer that question, Adam, let me just point out that rule 4.2 allows most investigative communications with even represented persons of the, of the kind that we're most likely to be uh, engaging in as prosecutors. Any communications lawfully permitted between prosecutors and represented persons are also going to be lawful if those same kinds of communications are between prosecutors and unrepresented persons. Uh, 
Rule 4.3 doesn't prohibit us from communicating with unrepresented persons. But if we're speaking with someone accused of a crime about the crime, we cannot allow the person to think we're not an interested party. Now, it should suffice for us to simply identify ourselves as prosecutors or district attorneys. However, if it appears the person doesn't understand what that means or the ramifications of that, we may, we may need to explain our role in investigating the person. And if we know some of the information that this person might have is lawfully privileged, privileged, we can't ask about that. Rule 3.8 puts some limits on our ability to seek a waiver of rights from the accused but unrepresented person. Well, if there's a limit on doing so, does that mean we can't plea bargain with unrepresented but accused persons? Not necessarily. The comment to Rule 4.3 says, this rule does not prohibit a lawyer from negotiating the terms of a transaction or settling a dispute with an unrepresented person. So long as the lawyer discloses the lawyer represents an adverse party and not the person, the lawyer may inform the person of the terms on, uh, on which the lawyer's client will enter into an agreement or settle the matter, <coughs> prepare documents that require the person's signature, and explain the lawyer's own view of the meaning of the document and underlying legal obligations. On its face, this comment suggests that, pursuant to Rule 4.3, a prosecutor could enter into a plea negotiation with an unrepresented defendant so long as the prosecutor did not give legal advice to the unrepresented person during the course of that negotiation. However, Subdivision C of Rule 3.8 kind of suggests otherwise, that we shouldn't be negotiating. Subdivision C says the prosecutor shall not seek to obtain from an unrepresented accused a waiver of important pretrial rights unless the tribunal has uh, approved the uh, appearance of the accused uh, as allows the person to represent themselves. So this rule seems to contemplate that direct negotiations with persons accused of a crime should only take place after a judge has granted the accused pro-per status. Well, until the person actually pleads, though, plea negotiating will not entail any waiver of rights, right? That's true. Though there may be ways that important pretrial rights are being lost through some plea bargains. Look, if a prosecutor successfully persuades a defendant to plead guilty to a charge absent the advice of an attorney, the prosecutor would be obtaining, effectively, a waiver of the right to counsel. This seems to run afoul of Subdivision C, and it also seems to be inconsistent with the spirit if not the actual language of subdivision B's requirement that the prosecutor make reasonable efforts to assure the accused has been advised of the right to and the procedure for obtaining counsel and has been given a reasonable opportunity to, to, to get counsel. And there's a case out of Idaho, not relatively new, a case called State versus Farfine Galvin, where the court in dicta disapproved at least of this practice. Uh, prosecutors in, in that case had been initiating contact with defendants while they were in custody in, in advance of their initial appearance or arraignment uh, in court in order to extend plea officers, which, if not accepted, would expire at the time of the initial appearance or arraignment. The uh, appellate court disliked it because they thought it had the practical effect of dissuading indigent defendants from seeking the assistance of court-appointed counsel to evaluate the offer. They said this practice would violate the comparable subdivisions uh, to R 3.8 B and C and also a comparable subdivision to R Rule 8.4 D, which uh, is another rule that prevents us from engaging in conduct 
prejudicial to the administration of justice. So it sounds like best to avoid engaging in plea bargaining with an unrepresented defendant. Yeah, that's best. If uh, you don't want to take that advice, prosecutor decides to ignore that advice, at least before you, you, you start negotiating, read through the IPG memo that accompanies this podcast, which lays out some of the things you definitely should not be doing during that plea negotiation. Okay, so then uh, may a prosecutor engage in uh, what's called confession bargaining without running afoul of Rule 3.8 or 4.3? You know, Adam, whether a prosecutor can engage in confession bargaining with an unrepresented suspect is a different question than whether a prosecutor can engage in plea bargaining. The few cases out there indicate that so long as the bargain is not induced by improper promises and the confession is voluntary and the accused gives a proper waiver of his right to an attorney, it would be permissible for a prosecutor to agree to a set disposition in exchange for a defendant's confession. Of course, the prosecutor has to carry out the promise bargain. A false promise will vitiate the voluntariness of any statement. But if a prosecutor asks for a waiver of the right to counsel and silence, doesn't that run afoul of the prohibition on obtaining a waiver of important pretrial rights? Well, paragraph C of the comment uh, to Rule 3.8 says it doesn't forbid, that Rule 3.8 doesn't forbid the lawful questioning of an uncharged suspect who has knowingly waived the right to counsel and the right to remain silent. I'm not encouraging prosecutors to engage in confession bargaining. It also has its risks. But if you got a serial killer who's indicating he'd be willing to tell you about a dozen murders he's committed based on a promise that he would not get the death penalty or will only be charged with two of the, of, of the murders, then refusing to negotiate might be irrational. So last question, Jeff. Does Rule 3.8 prevent a prosecutor from obtaining a waiver of rights in order to allow an unrepresented person to assist in criminal prosecutions or investigations? No. The comment to Rule 3.8 seems to contemplate that communications between prosecutors and unrepresented persons will take place when the prosecutor or law enforcement is seeking the assistance of the person in facilitating a prosecution or investigation into criminal activity. Uh, Rule 3.8c says it doesn't forbid prosecutors from seeking from an unrepresented accused a reasonable waiver of time for initial appearance or preliminary hearing as a means of facilitating the accused voluntary cooperation in an ongoing law enforcement operation. Well, Jeff, looks like I'm out of questions, so should we wrap it up? You bet. Adam, thanks for joining me, and, and thanks to our audience for taking the time to listen to this podcast.